Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Darbo, and you're listening to Med Conversations. I'm joined by the lovely Rebecca Foskey. Hello, dear listeners. And today we are talking about pneumonia as opposed to old pneumonia, which was our previous podcast, which we scrapped because it was bad. So this one... <laughs> just nothing. <laughs> just nothing. So this one is about pneumonia, which is also known as the old man's friend. I'm on palliative care at the moment, and certainly is the old man's friend. Well, the captain of death is its more violent name. It's the eighth most common cause of death in the US, and I reckon probably be similar here in Australia. And hospitalised patients with pneumonia have a 23% 30-day mortality rate. It's a really big killer. It's huge. But a lot of that is in patients that, you know, there is just you just need something to tip them over the edge. Mm. And a lot of cases happen during the winter months, and that's not because of what your mum told me that... Or to- <laughs> what my mum told me... <laughs> Uh, My mum would have told you that too. Yeah, that uh, the the winter and the cold and the wet um, gives you pneumonia. It's more to do with the fact that we stay together in, in close environments in those months. So before we dive into the clinical side, let's talk about the pathophysiology for a second. So the definition of pneumonia, Beck. So it's an infection and it's an infection of the pulmonary parenchyma. So that's the functional bit of the lung. mm so it's about pathogens at the alveolar level. It's not bronchitis. It's not, uh, you know, pharyngitis or laryngitis. It's right at the bottom in the little sacs. The alveolar are, are what is infected in pneumonia. The alveoli. The alveoli. Not the alveolar. That's right. Which is not a thing. <laughs> so usually the pathogens get there through the mouth, as you'd expect. But sometimes they can actually get there through the blood as well. So this is in a patient who has overwhelming sepsis and it starts to seed into different parts of the body. So it's no easy task being a little bacteria desperately trying to achieve its lifelong dream of causing a pneumonia. It's a real gauntlet it has to run before it can get down into those sweet sacs. So first of all, you've got your gag reflex, you've got your cough, all of that expels it out. You've got all your normal flora of the oropharynx, which are hogging all the space, meaning you can't attach to the wall. You've got these hairs and turbinates in the nares, as in the noses. The nose, the knives, <laughs> they get in the way. You've got cilia, you've got these little annoying things that kind of constantly beat you up out of, uh, out of the lungs. And then finally you've got this branching structure of the bronchial teeth. It's not like, it's not like a straight-down path. There's also lefts and rights you've got to take. It's complex. And then finally, if you do get into the alveoli, then you've got these nasty buggers called macrophages, uh, the alveolar macrophages, which are pretty intent on eating you. But if you manage to overcome all of that and you're successful bacteria um, and you're particularly virulent, you, uh, you'll cause a pneumonia. So in a pneumonia, it's not actually the bacteria that tends to give us all those nasty symptoms that helps us recognize the, the syndrome. It's the immune response. It's all the inflammatory cytokines that cause the fever mm. and the cough and uh, you know open up the alveolar to water, which is what gives you the creps. And what gives you those radiographic signs that we'll talk about in a moment. Before we go into the the, the story that pneumonia gives us in patients, uh, we'll go through the microbiology a little bit. So it's it's there's a lot of different bugs that can cause pneumonia, over a hundred. And uh, strap yourselves in. We're going to talk about all of them. It's going to list a hundred bugs. I'm not going to do that. We're just going to give you the top five. But before we do that, we'll um, give a bit of a shout-out to Typical versus Atypical, which is the old classification system that you'll probably still hear being thrown around a little bit. Not really very popular these days. No. So so Atypical is a pretty imprecise term, and 
the definition was always a little bit vague, whether that was an atypical um, bacteria or an atypical radiological appearance, atypical symptoms, mm. um, without much consensus. What the terms mean, like typical is your classic low bar pneumonia, all your barn door symptoms, and, uh, you know, very typical story. And then your atypicals are the more subacute pneumonias that tend to present with systemic unwellness. And it was thought that some bugs cause atypical, some cause typical, but we're actually not very good at distinguishing the two in history, so we've just kind of scrapped that whole classification system. All right, so the five most common organisms. So the most common? Streptococcus pneumonia. That's right. It's a gram-positive cocci, by far the most common, and that gives you your, your typical pneumonia most of the time. Mycoplasma pneumonia is the second most common pathogen. So this one's a tricky one because you can't see it on a gram stain. It doesn't have a cell wall Mm. to be stained. So it gives patients a prolonged course of illness. And often that's not your classic pneumonia with um, a lot of respiratory symptoms. It gets called walking pneumonia because patients um, aren't that unwell. They can have a prominent fever. They might have a clear chest and the infiltrates on a chest x-ray can be interstitial and not in that real loba distribution. It's most common in young adults. The third most common is chlamydophila pneumonia. So this is an obligate intracellular pathogen. It's a real parasite of a bug. It needs all our cellular machinery even to reproduce. And its clinical manifestations are, you know, classically in the textbook, similar to mycoplasma pneumonia. But remember, all that textbook stuff has pretty much gone out the window. Something like chlamydophila can cause like a very typical type pneumonia as well. So fourth on the list, Haemophilus influenza, mm. famous for causing meningitis, but it can also cause pneumonia. Particularly in people with um, COPD. Yeah, that's right. So it's a gram-negative coccobacillus and... Um, there's two main types, I was going to say. So the typable um, Hib or Haemophilus influenza, that's the one that causes meningitis and doesn't happen that much anymore because we've got a good vaccine. And then you've got your non-typable, which is not the type B, it's not the Hib, and that's the one that tends to cause the pneumonia. So fifth on the list, we won't go through all of them in detail, but the respiratory viruses, for example, influenza, is a, it can also actually cause a pneumonia, it can cause true consolidation, not just this viral upper respiratory tract infection that we see more commonly. Mm, and I hear there's a great podcast on influenza on the Med Conversations website, which mm. we may or may not be affiliated with. <laughs> so there, there are some other bugs, I think, uh, that are not in the top five, but are, but are relevant and worth mentioning. So Staphylococcus aureus, so that's worth mentioning because it can be really severe. And in MCQ land, classically... This causes uh, pneumonia after a virus, so it's like a super infection. So you've got a viral prodrome, and then you've got this really severe pneumonia that can be cavitating. Mm. So that's Staphylococcus, and you've got Klebsiella. What type of bug is that, Beck? So Klebsiella is a gram-negative pneumonia. So in MCQ land, and actually in all the patients that I've seen with this as well, uh, tends to happen in diabetics and alcoholics, not in well people. But if you've got those predisposing illnesses, you can get Klebsiella, gram-negative pneumonia, very severe. The last one I wanted to mention was Legionella. So this is an intracellular gram-negative, and it's a pretty recent discovery, 1973 or something. It was discovered after a big pneumonia outbreak at a Legionnaire's meeting, which is where it gets its name from. What actually is a Legionnaire? It's like a type of soldier. Cool hat. Yeah, I think that, I think it was just a group of people that liked to wear the cool hat and mm. had been ostracised by the rest of society because they didn't wear baseball caps. Mm. So they had to 
been in a really tight environment with bad air conditioning and they've got this Legionella pneumonia. Right, okay. It is it is relevant for us to know about though because it's a, it's a real big public health concern because it's actually in the water um, and there's lots of hospitals that have grown uh, Legionella in the water and um, that's really hard to eradicate and causes all kinds of strife in uh, their immunocompromised patients. Mm. So, so the classic thing with those, um, again, in questions or, or in real patients is the patients who spend a lot of time in air-conditioned buildings or with cooling towers. So it's not just about drinking the water, it's more water exposure through, through the air, through those kind of mechanisms. Mm. All right, so moving on to clinical manifestations, so real patients in front of us. So this is the history. So three questions that I ask is screening for pneumonia. Uh, do you have a cough? Are you bringing up sputum with that cough? That's one question. Are you short of breath? And do you have chest pain, particularly pleuritic chest pain? So chest pain worse on breathing in. And the other one that they'll have is, is chills and fevers as well. Mm, okay, so pleuritic chest pain for medical students. Um, that That's not just pain that's worse on breathing in. It's a specific kind of pain that comes from irritation of the pleura. Mm. So it's a somatic kind of pain. And that means that it's very well localized. So you say, where's the pain? And they're not going to sort of use the palm of their hand and gesture all over their chest. They'll say, it's here. And they'll they'll usually be able to identify which part of the lung is affected. So someone with a left lower load pneumonia tends to actually have left-sided chest pain. So the other symptom I wanted to quickly mention, but 20% of patients with pneumonia have uh, GI gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. So if you're working up someone with uh, query, you know, abdominal, don't be abdominal complaints, don't be fooled, could, could be pneumonia, could very well be pneumonia. All right. Uh, and the other thing in, in your history, don't just make the diagnosis of pneumonia and just accept it because it's not a normal thing to have a pneumonia. We don't walk around like every every second day I wake up, oh, I've got a pneumonia again. It's a particular situations and you need to think about why this patient in front of you in this particular situation has a pneumonia. And there's three reasons why that can happen. So they could be exposed to a particularly virulent organism, which is obviously a, a public health concern, so we need to know if Legionella is around or something like that. They could have a defect in their host defences, so they could be immunocompromised, and this could be their first presentation. I've certainly seen that, people that have um, you know, ended up having HIV or something else like that. Um, so that that's something you need to think about. And the third cause... Um, could have been a particularly overwhelming inoculant. They might have aspirated a lot of bugs to get through those severe uh, immune defences we talked about before. So that happens in something like a, a seizure or um, you know a stroke or something I'm like just that. Vomiting and yeah, which you know might indicate other medical conditions you need to know about. So once more, three reasons why people develop pneumonia: exposure to a particularly virulent organism, a defect in the patient's own host defences. Or an overwhelming inoculum. So just some examples of particularly virulent organisms. Chlamydophila pneumonia produces a ciliostatic factor. It stops those cilia from beating. Mycoplasma pneumonia can actually shear off the cilia, get rid of them completely. Influenza virus actually reduces your tracheal mucus velocity from slow to extremely slow, <laughs> <laughs> and um, which prevents your host defences from working properly as well. So then host factors. So... You know, that, that's not, when we say immunosuppressed or um, that kind of thing, it's not necessarily something like HIV. It can be more structural things. You know, your innate immune system. Is there a cancer underlying all of this? So they have COPD. Um, 
And then finally, overwhelming inoculum, as we said, seizures or stroke or something like that, something like Alzheimer's, you know, that's how Alzheimer's patients typically die is of, of pneumonia in this kind of situation. Mm. All right, so that's the history done. Moving on to the exam now. So pneumonia is one of those times where you really have to make sure you write down those observations and carefully look at them quickly, very early on, because it's really going to dictate what you do from there on. So what kind of things am I looking for on the OBS chart, Beck? So the first one my eyes gravitate towards is the, um, well, the respiratory rate and the oxygen saturations. Mm. The oxygen is going to be one of the key things that determines whether this patient has to stay in hospital or not. Mm. Respiratory rate can be one of the first things that goes off in a patient who then becomes very, very unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, fever, obviously. Most patients with pneumonia have a fever, over 80%. Um, but it's worth keeping in mind that older patients tend to be hypothermic some of the time rather than just being hyperthermic. So a low temperature is also a concern. So if you're seeing a patient um, who's been in the emergency department or wherever else for, for a while, make sure you go back and look at what they were on presentation or during their stay. Because it can be really something that we hang our hat on later down the track when we're trying to make the diagnosis of pneumonia, whether there was a documented fever at some stage or not. Mm. Tachycardia and hypotension, and they tend to go hand in hand. Mm. Um, hypotension is a very concerning sign for sepsis. Absolutely, yeah. So OBS chart, really important. So I won't dwell on other parts of the exam too much, uh, but basically when we listen to the chest, we're looking for crackles. We're looking for that fluid in the alveoli. There's a bunch of other kind of Taliocona physician, physician's exam type stuff which you could do. If you want to look particularly smart, you know, doing things like vocal resonance and vocal fremitus where you place the hands on the chest and get them to say 99, that doesn't really get done in clinical practice that much. Um, if you percuss them, they'll be dull but not stony dull, um, like you, you get with a pleural effusion. Good on you if you can really pick out those two <laughs> very subtle signs. Um, and then, you know, the classic bronchial breath sounds of listening to to a water-filled lung, which is supposed to be very similar to listening on your trachea. Mm, I do think you mentioned the, the key one that you're really looking for, and that's crepitations. I said that first. You oh, did you? You weren't listening. I tuned out, that's sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you're right to re-emphasize that. That's the main one. When people are going through your admission or whatever else, and they want to know whether this person has pneumonia or evidence of pneumonia, that's what they're looking for. Do, do their lungs sound wet in a particular section? And it's coarse crepitations usually. So I've got something disheartening to tell you all, dear listener. Despite all that hard work on the history and exam, this is not one of those situations where the key is in the history and the exam. It's more of a rule-out test, really. It's quite sensitive um, to to pick up whether there's a pneumonia or not, but it's not specific. There's lots of people that will have that kind of stuff and end up not having pneumonia. And that was proven in a JAMA paper in 1997 titled Does This Patient Have Community Acquired Pneumonia? And the answer was like, I don't know, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to investigations, which are really important here. So I'm a big fan of the CRP, the C-reactive protein in this kind of situation because you can really differentiate between something like pneumonia and something like heart failure. Is there an infection going on? So typically it will be raised, like in my anecdotal experience, at least above 50, but I've seen plenty in kind of the 200, 300 range. Mm. And the white cell count, particularly the neutrophil count, is really important as well. You also want to do a UEC, make sure their urea is not elevated. You'll do all the other baseline bloods as well, yeah. Arterial blood gas might sometimes be done to work out how sick they are. And the test that 
isn't done often enough, sadly, is um, blood cultures. So if someone is getting admitted to hospital with pneumonia, they need blood cultures because you don't like after that they might get really really sick, and that might have been their opportunity to get a bug before we give them all the antibiotics. Mm. All right, so. Chest x-ray is really where the money is with pneumonia. And this is something I would really want to emphasize quite a bit. Can you make the diagnosis of pneumonia with a normal chest x-ray? Sounds like a pretty leading question, Davo. What's the answer? Yes. <laughs> Please don't confuse people. No, no you, can't. you can't. So it's part of the consensus guidelines, which you don't want to mess with, from the Infectious Diseases Society of America and the American Thoracic Society. And they tell us you can't make the diagnosis of pneumonia without a chest x-ray. Having said that, you can make a presumptive diagnosis with a normal chest x-ray because sometimes it takes time for those changes to appear, particularly if you're dehydrated and then it's not until you give them fluid that one of their you know, lung um, lungs fills up with fluid. Uh, but when you're writing the discharge summary at the end of the admission or a few days later when you're really trying to work out why this person was hypoxic and they've never had an abnormal chest x-ray, you can't make the diagnosis of pneumonia. So when you've got this chest x-ray in front of you and you're trying to figure out whether the person has pneumonia, what, what are the things you're looking for? Three things. So consolidation is the key one. Mm. Um, a medical student today told me that that's the black stuff on the x-ray. So just to... Uh, redress any myths out there, it's the white. Mm -hmm. Um, So classically, low bar consolidation has been taught to be due to typical organisms, but again, there's there's no evidence um, that we can even tell the difference at all. Mm. Then you've got your interstitial infiltrates as the other thing, that kind of patchy stuff, the haziness. And then cavitation, which is, uh, that's the black stuff. So that's when you've got black Mm. stuff and white stuff. I actually have never seen it myself, just seen pictures on Google. Uh, But that's a very rare but serious complication of necrotizing pneumonia, such as Staph aureus, like we talked about. Mm, I've seen it once in a patient who actually wasn't that unwell, Mm. which is not typical. All right, so you've done your basic bloods. you figured out they've got an infection, and ABG shows they're hypoxic. You've done the chest X-ray. And you've figured out they're hypoxic because they've got this, you know, low bar pneumonia. What's the next step in the investigations? So now I want to find out what the causative organism Why? is. Who cares? You know they've got pneumonia. So it'll help direct therapy? Yeah, so it can help with um, kind of antibiotic um, rationalisation because if you find a bug, then you can really narrow it down and hammer that one bug. But also people, you know, sometimes don't always do well um, with pneumonia and if they're deteriorating... It's really good to have some good cultures at the beginning of the stay to try and figure out exactly what bug it is and whether it's a resistant bug, do we need to change our antibiotics? So how do we find the bug, Beck? So sputum culture, which is often quite difficult to obtain without too much contamination, but we keep trying. Mm-hmm. Um, urinary antigens are good for pneumococcus and legionella, but so, so it's fairly a weird low one, yield. Right? So it's weird. It's something that took me a while to get my head around. So you're looking for a lung infection, but you actually look for evidence of the bug in the urine. But the tests actually work quite well. They're not that sensitive, but they're very specific for pneumococcus and uh, Legionella is the other one. Hmm. Um, and so anything else you want to do? Uh, they're, they're the ones that I would do in everyone. Are there some optional ones you'd consider in certain situations? Yeah, so, well, firstly, I don't know if I would actually do urinary antigens in everybody. It takes a while to come back and rarely very useful it's a bit of a debatable point. Some I've definitely had some um, physicians who don't like the Legionella antigens. 
Um, but I think most people deserve a pneumococcus antigen because, as I said, you can rationalize just down to benzyl penicillin. We'll talk about that a bit more in a second. And also helps with kind of epidemiological data and that kind of thing. That's true. Legionella, it's a bit more arguable, but that's a, you know, a real public health concern. You've got to, if you, you've got to know if that's around. Mm. Mm. I suppose it depends on, well, really, it depends on who your boss is, but it de- depends on level of suspicion as well, perhaps. Yeah, but it is debatable mm. to bring out the point. Uh, and then the other tests I sometimes do, if it sounds really viral in nature and you're worried about a viral prodrome or a viral pneumonia, then you've got to do a nasal pharyngeal aspirate swab and viral PCR. Beware, you'll make an enemy of the nurses if you do that, as we talked about in our influenza podcast, because that means a patient has to be isolated. But you've got to do what you've got to do sometimes. <laughs> also, if patients are really very unwell and haven't responded well to antibiotics, you might even consider bronchoalveolar lavage. Yeah, so I've only seen this done in ICU when they can just kind of do it when they're intubated anyway and get some get some good sputum samples to help direct stuff. So this is sort of like bronchoscopy and then pouring in a whole lot of water, mixing it around and then putting that into tubes is my understanding. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I also don't have a good understanding. So moving on to something else that I also don't understand very well, but I think is worth mentioning. So this is not something we do now. This is a future test, which I think will hopefully become relevant in the next few years. But procalcitonin is all the rage in journals at the moment. So that's a, that's a blood test, um, which is similar to CRP, but really specific for a bacterial infection. And it's a peptide precursor of calcitonin. It's released by parenchymal cells in response to bacterial toxins, but not viral infections. It's actually down-regulated in viral infections. So a Cochrane meta-analysis looked at use of this uh, test and actually showed it, it meant we um, used less antibiotics, which is obviously really, really important, and there was no decrease in mortality. So look out for that test, procalcitonin. There was no increase in mortality. Yeah, sorry. All right, so as I've said before, we're going to be replaced by robots very soon. I wonder if we'll even see out a full career as doctors. But when we are replaced, what algorithms are the, are the robots going to be using? All right, so... So the Australian robots, not the American the, robots. The, Australia, the Australian robots use a couple of different algorithms. Mm. One of them is looking at whether or not to admit a patient to the robot hospital or not. Mm. Um, so CORB mm. is this one. So CORB stands for... C is for confusion. Is it, we didn't mention that earlier on the history and exam, but delirium. Yeah. Is that think about. Yeah. Um, the O... Is oxygen saturation, so less than 90%. So you're getting one point for each of the yeses here. Mm-hmm. Respiratory rate, greater than 30. Mm-hmm. And the last one, so we said it was CORB, the B, blood pressure, systolic less than 90 or diastolic less than 50. So CORB, confusion, oxygen, respirate, blood pressure. Really good thing to memorise and just use at the at the bedside. So if you've got none of those, you've got a pretty mild pneumonia, you can probably leave hospital. If you've got one of them, you've got a moderate pneumonia, probably need hospitalisation, but, you know, you you're probably going to be okay. And if you've got two, then we get really worried. And you've got severe pneumonia. You need, you need some hospitalization, hardcore antibiotics, and possible uh, non-invasive ventilation. Mm. If I'm the robot doctor and I've got a diagnosis of two, I'm worried about NIV. Is there another algorithm I can use which will help me make the NIV? Yeah, so NIV is non-invasive ventilation. That's your mm. CPAP mm. or BiPAP. Which you use in some patients. And you can't, you can't give that on the ward, so it helps to determine where this patient needs to go. Do they so, go to ICU? Do they go to CCU? Do they just go to a gen med ward? Mm. So, so um, the tool here is SmartCop, S for systolic BP, again, less than 90, M for multi-low by X-ray invol- involvement, 
A for albumin, less than 35. R for respirate. T for tachycardia. C for confusion. O for oxygen. And pH less than 7.35. So that one's a bit more complicated. You probably need to look that one up on the web when you use it. But just remember smart cop um, if you're trying to work out whether someone needs non-invasive ventilation. All right, so you might hear CURB 65 being thrown around and uh, the PSI, the Pneumonia Severity Index, but the dirty algorithms that are designed in in the US and we don't like to use them in in Australia. We believe in Australian-made things and Australian robots damn well better be using the Australian algorithms. All right, so you've algorithm them and you've decided they need treatment. Um, How are you going to treat them? All right, so if we're, if we're going to say that somebody's pneumonia is mild and suitable for outpatient management, you give them orals. So amoxicillin, which covers strep pneumonia and haemophilus influenza. So it covers the more atypical organisms like mycoplasma as well, but it's a real specialist for strep pneumonia and haemophilus influenza. That's what it mostly covers. Mm, but remember, we're not using words like atypical. Yeah, that's right. I'm just, I'm um, just an old guy. I'm just trying to get rid of my old habits. So al- alternatively... Uh, if not amoxicillin, you can use doxycycline mm-hmm. or clarithromycin. So this is a one-agent treatment. All right. So if they've got moderate pneumonia, they've got a CORB of one, and uh, they need inpatient management, but that's not too bad. You can use uh, a benzyl penicillin and then um, just add on some, and that's really good for streptococcus pneumonia, and you can just add on some atypical cover um, doxycycline. And then the really severe pneumonias, so that's when you need to cover for those nasty gram negatives, and usually it's the people with underlying illnesses that get the severe pneumonia. You need gram negative cover, so keftriaxone does that really well, and um, azithromycin is the stronger atypical cover. You can give that IV as well. Mm. So kef and azith, we actually tend to just use that for everyone, but technically, according, according to the therapeutic guidelines and the rational use of antibiotics you should only use that for severe and just to emphasize we're talking here about community acquired pneumonia so yeah i didn't emphasize that enough so that's community acquired pneumonia so it's different different bugs and and different antibiotics because of that for community acquired pneumonia versus hospital acquired pneumonia so that's what we're going to talk about now so mild hospital acquired pneumonia um, is augmentin durofort, which or is which is what amoxicillin with clavulanic acid. So we pr- prefer that to just amoxicillin because the reason we use different antibiotics in the hospital is because you're more likely to be exposed to multi-drug resistant um, bugs because they've been in this wonderful kind of Darwinian environment where just the best bugs, the strongest bugs that are best equipped to deal with antibiotics, rise to the top. So you need something like clavulanic acid, which um, kind of breaks down their anti-antibiotic defences. But basically, you need broader coverage, stronger coverage. So that's the oral um, antibiotics for mild pneumonia. And then moderate to severe pneumonia that needs IV antibiotics. If they've got minimal symptoms of multidrug-resistant organisms, like they just came to hospital... Symptoms? Or if they've got minimal risk factors. Yeah, for, so they've just come MDR to hospital. Organisms. They're not immunosuppressed. They're not in a hospital that has a lot of multidrug-resistant organisms. You can just use keftriaxone still. But most of the time, most um, severe uh, pneumonia that's acquired in hospital needs tazacin. So that's ticaracillin. No, it's oh, sorry, not. Sorry, <laughs> pipar- sorry, and tazobactam, which gives really broad coverage and is really good against resistant organisms like ESBL organisms or pseudomonas. 
So just to make it really, really simple and summarize, so in, so at, in the community, mild pneumonia is amoxicillin or doxycycline. Um, moderate or severe, which requires hospitalization, is um, benpen and doxycycline or severe keftriaxin and azithromycin. And then inside the hospital, it's a different set of antibiotics which are better against resistant organisms. So the mild stuff needs augmentin duofort. And then the moderate or severe um, cases either need keftriaxin if there's not much risk of multidrug resistant organisms. And if there is, then you go to tazacin. Beautiful summary. Okay, all right. Let's put this in practice. So now I've got just a few quick cases. We'll try and be quick. I know we're running a little bit long. I'm sorry about that. Um, so we'll start off with Bertha. She's 85 years old. She's got shortness of breath. She's cough with green sputum. Not many comorbidities. She is, however, hypoxic on room air, you notice. She's tachypneic with a respirator of 28. On exam, she has some crackles. Um, her blood shows she's got a raised CRP. And a chest x-ray shows left-based consolidation. Pneumonia. Yeah, genius. Nice one. What's the next decision? Are you going to hospitalize her? What's her CORB score? Well, um, she's hypoxic, she's tachypneic, so that's already two points, so she can come to hospital. Mm. So given she's coming to hospital, are you going to order any other tests that we don't have yet? Yes, all admitted patients need uh, blood cultures, and I also want to find out the bug in the sputum. Mm. And you probably do those urinary antigens. And I do those urinary antigens, yeah. And then how are you going to treat it? So we said the CORB score was two, which is equivalent to severe pneumonia. So she's going to get keftriaxone and azithromycin because this is community acquired. All right. So down the other end of the age spectrum, James. It's a 24-year-old guy who presents with a fever and a bit of cough. It's non-productive. His obs are all fine. He has a clear chest. At this point, you're thinking, oh, it's probably just a man. we got to send this guy home. Do a chest x-ray for what it's worth. And then you notice he's got quite a, bit, quite a few changes. You can't believe he's walking around with this chest x-ray. This is a lot like walking pneumonia. It is. He's got a reticular nodular pattern that's patchy. What's walking pneumonia? What bug is that? Remind me. Um, finish your sentence first. Patchy. Changes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what a sentence end it was. <laughs> so, so walking pneumonia is mycoplasma pneumonia. Yeah, often presents in that kind of way. Yeah, and it's common in teenagers, young adults, people living in boarding schools, that kind of thing. Does he need to be admitted? Um, well, no, not really. Um, so his corpse score sounds like it would be pretty low. In, in reality, in the emergency department, I reckon a, a guy this young with quite a severe chest-looking uh, chest X-ray would probably get an overnight stay in short stay. Um, you're suspecting mycoplasma. Is there some test you can do to, to diagnose it? So he can do mycoplasma serology, but that's a useless test in isolation. You need to do both acute and convalescent serology um, tests to see the trend. So you'd expect it, would you expect it to go up or down, the titers of... I'd expect um, it to go up. Yeah. So more than fourfold is the... But anyway, pretty pretty academic, you wouldn't actually do it. And how you want to treat this guy? Um, so if he is sent home, then oral doxycycline. But if he does stay the night in short stay unit, maybe some IV azithromycin. Good, good. All right, Antonio, back to the other end of the age spectrum, is a 76-year-old guy at a big stroke... Nothing we could do about it. Really bad neurological outcome. On the ward, the nurses have heard him gurgling. He's concerned. He's got a lot of secretions. Speech pathology have come by, and they're worried that he's aspirating. He doesn't have a good swallow. And he spikes a fever, and uh, the overnight resident sees him, notices the aspiration, does a good job, puts him on keftriaxone um, because, you know, that's a 
it, there's not much risk of multi-drug resistant organisms. It's a good antibiotic to put him on or cover him for all those gram negatives. You come around and see him in the morning as part of the stroke team. You're pretty happy with what, what the resident's done, but what medication is missing? What do they need? So there's no anaerobic cover there, so mm. I would like him to be on some metronidazole as well. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Anne, 50-year-old lady, completely well normally, and then she just out of nowhere gets this barn door pneumonia, typical low bar changes, has a pneumococcus antigen, responds really well to benzyl penicillin and then amoxicillin. Uh, you're the intern on, on Gen Med, or this will be respiratory probably. What's the thing in the follow-up section that you just can't miss in someone like this? It's potentially a life-saving sentence you could be putting down. The follow-up section of the discharge summary. Of the discharge summary. summary. So, so once she leaves hospital, what does she need? Yeah, so, so in this 50-year-old lady, you've got to wonder whether there could be some kind of underlying malignancy or another, uh, another sort of... Cancer? Yeah. Structural abnormality. Structural abnormality that predisposes her to this. So I'd, I'd um, be asking for a follow-up chest X-ray in six to eight weeks. Once the pneumonia infectious changes have resolved. Okay, so last case now, Ben. So this is a bit tricky, this is a bit advanced, but it's good to know, I think. Um, 26-year-old guy comes in with, again, kind of typical pneumonia symptoms, fever, shortness of breath, cough. He's got big consolidation on his chest X-ray. And then you're putting his cannula for his Keftriaxone, and you notice he's got a few track marks around the place. No one's got this history item before, but you're a pretty affable-type junior doctor, and you build a rapport, and you actually learn that he's an IV drug user. So what does that change? Why is that important to know in this case? So I'm pretty concerned about any IV drug user who's febrile and mm. the risk of endocarditis. And mm. um, So he, he does have pneumonia, we've said, so that there's consolidation on the X-ray, but perhaps it could be from septic, or perhaps instead of pneumonia, it could be septic emboli from infective endocarditis. Yeah, so this is a real quandary that we sometimes find ourselves in. Is it pneumonia? Is it septic emboli from um, infective endocarditis? You definitely keep a really close eye on him. You make sure there's no murmur. You look for the stigmata of infective endocarditis, and you'd probably talk to infectious diseases and see whether they'd recommend an echocardiogram. Mm, great. All right. Thanks, Davo. So let's quickly run through some take-home um, take messages. We won't be long. Sorry, this has been running a little bit late. Um, what are the five most common organisms? Strep pneumonia, mycoplasma pneumonia, chlamydophilia pneumonia, haemophilus influenza, and respiratory viruses like flu. Yeah. Three most common symptoms? Cough with sputum, dyspnea, and pleuritic chest pain. Good. And, and fever. Can I give four? And what are the three reasons why someone might get a pneumonia? Um, exposure to a particularly virulent organism, defect in the host defences, or an overwhelming inoculum-like vomit. And... Aspiration of vomit. And what... Can you have pneumonia with a normal chest X-ray? No, you can't. Not, not but eventually. But it might be delayed. Initially it might be, but then eventually you shouldn't You shouldn't have that. Um, and what are, what's the, the score we use to work out whether we should hospitalise someone or the severity of the pneumonia? Corb, confusion, oxygen, respirate, blood pressure. And the one to figure out whether they need ventilatory support? Smart cop. And how do I treat uh, mild outpatient pneumonia? Amoxicillin. Community quiet, so. Amoxicillin or doxycycline. And uh, a moderate um, community quiet pneumonia. IV Benpen and oral doxy. And severe 
in uh, community cord pneumonia? IV ceftriaxone and IV azithromycin. And a mild hospital-acquired pneumonia? Uh, amoxicillin clavulanate. And a moderate or severe hospital-acquired pneumonia? So you definitely want to give intravenous antibiotics. And if you think that there's risk factors for multidrug-resistant organisms, you give tazacin, but otherwise ceftriaxone will be sufficient. Fantastic. Thank you very much for listening. So it was a bit long, but it's a really, really important topic to know inside out. Bread and butter medicine.